pray with me, and we're going to get in the message. Um, God, we just, we just thank you for this opportunity to open up your word and to preach your word and to be changed by your word. God, I pray that our hearts would not be hard, um, that our hearts would not be complacent as we deal with truths that are familiar to many. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be stirred and that we would be changed in our seats for your glory. Amen. Um, if you guys don't know me, my name's Shannon. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, glad to have you guys out with us. Um, we're in this series in the Gospel of John called God in Our Neighborhood. And we call it that because we recognize that the Gospel story is all about the God of the universe leaving heaven to come and join us in our neighborhood, to come and meet us where we're at. It's also about his call on our lives that we would be like him in leaving what is comfortable for us, leaving what is safe for us, leaving what is easy for us, going across the street and around the world to engage our neighbors wherever they might be with the love of our God. Amen? So that's what we're getting into in this series. Um, The passage that we're dealing with today, if you caught it in the scripture reading, it begins with John 3.16. And for some of you guys, you got no idea what that means. It's just like anything else, you know, in church. It's just confusing. If you don't know John 3.16, welcome to Mosaic Church. Glad to have you. Um, but for many of us, if we grew up in the church, and if we grew up in the kind of church where they memorized scripture, this was quite possibly the very first verse that was memorized. Okay? And even if we don't have any of that context, even if Sundays have always only been about watching football, we have seen poster boards in the stands that say John 3.16. It's this crazy, famous verse. And if you're a spiritual insider, if it's familiar, it's easy to think that this is a verse for spiritual outsiders. And fortunately, we're thankful to have some with us today that can maybe hear this verse for the first time. But I also want all of us to hear this with fresh ears and to see this with fresh eyes and Man, I want us to understand that God has written this to all of us. That all of us need to be impacted by the lavish love of our God. So this morning, the passage is John 3, verses 16 to 21. It's about this God who so loved. And I want to highlight kind of four things in it. We're talking about the magnitude of his love, the cost of his love, the nature of his love, and our doubts about his love and how those doubts wreck us and lead us astray. So the passage begins, For God so loved the world. Again, that is familiar to some of us. And it's familiarity, it can lull us to sleep. When we hear these words, I I don't want them to be something that we've heard since we were four, and some of us, you know, you're maybe four still, but some of us, like Timo and I, we're getting up there. Okay, I don't, I don't want this to be something that, that when you quote these words in your head, I don't want it to be like you're reading a phone book. You know, I don't want it to be like, okay, I'm, I'm kind of like sometimes when we're trying to remember something, we kind of like look up and we're like staring off into the distance and it's monotone. You know, for God so loved the, the world that I, I don't want it to be like that. When, when, when this verse is repeated in our heads. I want it to resound in our hearts. I want it to be like like you're a super patriotic guy and Aretha Franklin is singing the national anthem and and your body is moving and your your hands are trembling and, and it grips a hold of you and it grabs you. For God so loved. 
we got to be moved by this. we got to be changed by this. We, we've got to be gripped by this. Who is it that God loves? We see the magnitude of his love. What's the, what's the object of his love? We're talking about this, this God who so loved the world. Okay? And within the world, we are included. Some of us were tuned into the reality that we are the objects of God's love. But when it says, for God so loved the world... The emphasis is is on the outsider. It's on those who are far from God, as all of us at one time were. This is about the redeeming love. This is about the pursuing love. This is about the God who comes to our neighborhood, who comes to get us, who crosses the street, who crosses the tracks, who goes to the rough side of town and says, I want you in my kingdom. For God so loves the world. And again, this is, this is a verse that needs to shape us as spiritual insiders. We need to be wrecked by the attitude of our God towards the outside world. Sometimes as Christians, we, 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 get, we get in our little Christian ghetto. And, and we kind of build up walls and, and we look at the outside like we're in some sort of culture war. Our God is not in a culture war. Our God is on a rescue mission. And he loves, loves, loves the world. And that has got to shape how we interact with every single person in our lives. Our classmates and coworkers, our friends and families, our neighbors and complete strangers. It's got to change our attitude. We've got, we're called to have the passion that our God has for a world that, that has been separated from him. Amen? We see the magnitude of his love. We see something of the, the object of his love. And, and if God has so loved the world in this way, what does it look like for us to so love the world? I don't, I don't want us to be the people that we go out in the world and, and, and other people observe our actions. They're like, oh, that guy really loves people. That, that, that lady, she really seems to love people. That's nice. When they, when they think about the way that we love people, I, I want it to be like this verse. I want the word so to be in there. And I want it to be bold and italicized and underlined and pumped up in a bigger font. When, when, when people see the way we interact in the world, my prayer is that they would be confused. That they would be befuddled. Like, Blaine so loves the world. Pete so loves the world. Viv, she, she, she so loves people. Our God loves people in a way that makes them stagger and stutter. One of my favorite things is when people come into this church and they're, they, they, they don't know what they want to do with Jesus, but they're just confused by how we've loved people in the community. And they're like, I, I got to figure out what's going on. That's beautiful. That's our calling. Because, because that is the love of our God toward us and towards others. So we see the magnitude of his love, something of the object of his love. Next we see the cost of his love. Again, John, John 3.16 from the top. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We'll get to that latter phrase in a minute. Um, but for now, I want us to see the cost of God's love. The, the cost is the life of his son. Here's the idea. Here's the dynamic. We, we stood alienated from God. 
we, we stood in our sins. And, and we have this, this good and just God that deals with sin. When, if, if you're on the playground and you see something going wrong, you see a, a kid being bullied, you, you, want, you want there to be an adult, an authority figure that comes in and deals with it, that makes it right, that brings peace, and brings punishment as needed. And that is our God of justice. And so we, we stood condemned. We, we stood under, under the penalty of our own sin. And God stepped in our place. Somebody had to pay the penalty. And what we see in Scripture is that from eternity past, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they agreed that one of them would go and one of them would pay the penalty, that God the Son would go and He would die. And that's what we're talking about when we talk about costly love. That's the cost of seeing men and women like us reconciled to God. But what I want us to understand is that the cost continues. Jesus paid it all. That's what the hymn says, and that is true. The, the, the debt has been played. When, when Jesus hung on the cross, he cried out to Telestai, it is finished. The debt has been paid. The debt, the debt for our reconciliation to God. And yet there is just this cosmic reality that as we are called to follow Jesus, like Jesus, we're going to need to die a little. There is a reality that in order to bring the gospel to other people, someone is going to have to pay with their life. Not on the cross, not dying for our sins, but we're going to need to suffer. We're going to need to die a little bit. We're going to need to set aside our goals and desires and dreams just a little bit or maybe a lot so that other people can be reconciled to their God. The advancement of the kingdom of God is costly. It always comes at a cost. Some of you guys, maybe you've been in the church a lot and you've read like missionary biographies and you understand that for, for centuries there's, there's, there's been this, this norm, maybe we're getting out of it now, but, but for a long time to take the gospel not just across the street but around the world, you knew it was going to cost you everything. They didn't pack suitcases, they packed coffins because they understood they were going to places where they would not live long and it was just practical. But ministry is always costly. Maybe it will cost you everything, but it will certainly cost you something. And I want us to see that that is beautiful. God loved us at the cost of his son. Jesus loved us at the cost of his life. And as we are invited to follow him, we're invited to embrace a costly discipleship. You know, we're, we're invited to embrace costly ministry. Some of you kids, I told you I'm going to talk to the kids. Some of you kids, you're here for the first time this morning, or the 31st time this morning, or maybe the 301st time this morning. Because someone in this church has loved you with a costly love. Mentoring is costly. About 30 of you were out to the, adults were out to the fun Friday the other night. And I'm, it was fun, but it was costly. Okay? You get to the end of your Friday, and, and you know, if that's the end of your work week, you've, you've, you've been grinding hard all week. And, and now, you know, this, this pastor guy who was up on stage last week, he's like, hey, we need like 30 or 40 of you guys to come out, and um, yeah, we're just going to invite the whole school, and we're going to get pizza, and, and it's going to be crazy. And even the gym teacher's like, how many kids are going to be in that gym? It's costly. And, and there's varying degrees of, wow, that was fun and that was exciting, versus, ah, can't believe this. 
But it takes emotional energy. It takes time. There's, there's other things that that evening could be spent on, and it, it comes at a cost. And all ministry comes at a cost. You know, being in the band on Sunday morning, being on the tech team or the hospitality team or the setup team, the people, the, the people who before their coffee could even begin to take effect, you know, it's like 7.30 in the morning on a Sunday morning, and they are here getting all of this set up so that we could worship. That comes at a cost. Relationships come at a cost. Figuring out what it looks like to love our neighbors, expecting nothing in return. We talk about being this church that, that, that we want to be a family, but we want to be like this wide open family. We want to be like this, this foster family that's like fostering to adopt. And we're just welcoming people in. And we are going to love unconditionally, knowing that some of the people who walk from the doors, they're going to walk out and they're never going to come back. And there's going to be a loss because if you invest and, and you, you love and you try to get to know somebody and they're like, yeah, I'm not really interested in you. Okay, that's, that's hard. But it's just part of the beauty that we're called to. Um, this yesterday, I was at a, um, an athletic event for my daughter, and I'm getting to know some of the other parents, and there's, um, there's a Jewish guy that I know pretty well, and he starts grilling me on questions about the church, and we, we've spent some time together, so he knows a little bit, but it's just outside of his world, and he knows, you know, um, he, he kind of, the way he was explaining it, he's kind of the Jewish equivalent of a Christmas and Easter Christian, you know, like, you know, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, like he's there, you know, maybe one other time or whatever, but, you know, that world isn't from, very familiar, our world's completely unfamiliar. So he's grilling me, we're talking, and then, and then another guy jumps in the congregation, in the conversation, also from a Jewish background. But this guy doesn't even know the synagogue. This guy, he, he's, he's culturally Jewish, not religiously. So he's just, he's starting to engage, and he's trying to understand. And, um, you know, we're talking about, like, the Fun Friday and some of the stuff that we're doing. And, and, and he's like, now, now, wait a minute. Do, do people pay dues to be a part of your church? And I'm like, no, no, no. It's, um, yeah, I suppose there's some organizations that might be like that. No, it's not like that. Like, Everybody's welcome, and, and some people give and some people don't give. And, and if they give, they give because they're really passionate about what we're doing in the community and in the world, okay? But it's, it's not like you we're going around to each seat and collecting a certain, you know, kind of ticket stub kind of a thing or your monthly dues or anything like that. But here's the reality. Ministry is financially costly, too. And, like, we're in this season right now where we're, where we're seeing as we're expanding what we're doing in the community and whatnot, there's just a reality that as new people come to the church, like giving lags behind that. You know, but ministry is going to come at a cost to somebody. You know, we, we talk about receiving the lavish, the lavish grace of God, and yet even the grace of God comes at a cost. It doesn't come at a cost to us to receive, but it comes at a great cost to Christ who gives. You know, the grace that we receive in salvation comes at the, at the cost of Jesus' life. The ministry that, that, that you can receive today or that, that, that others receive out in the community, it comes at a, at a cost in every way. It comes at a financial cost of someone. Somebody will have to bear the cost. And, and one of the things that we want to do as a church is we want to be raising up more and more people who say, I, I want to give. I want to sacrifice my time, my talent, my treasure, whatever it is. I want to push it to the middle of the table. I want to be all in. It's okay that it's costly because my God has loved me in a costly way and, and I'm willing. I'm, I'm willing to sacrifice in order that others might know him. Amen? Grace comes at a cost to somebody, to Jesus, to us, and it's beautiful. Man, it begs the question, what will, 
What will costly love look like for you and me even this week? How will God's costly love change the way we interact with friends and family, neighbors and strangers? Classmates and coworkers, how will it change us? So we've talked about the magnitude of God's love. We've talked about the cost of his love. Next, I want to look at the, the nature of his love and the nature of his mission. Kids, you are being incredible right now. Totally nailing it. Uh, again, John 3.16 from the top. For God so loved the world that he gave. His one and only son, that, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, this is a familiar passage. The one before, it's a little less familiar. And some of you guys were here last week, some of you weren't. So just a little bit of recap. Kind of the tail end of what Rob preached last week was this passage about a bronze snake. And it's a little bit of an obscure one. It's a little bit of a, an odd one. It's a little bit weird. Okay, so there's this time in the book of Numbers where, where the nation of Israel, God's people, they are under God's wrath. They've rebelled against them, and he's allowed punishment to come upon them. And, and God has, has sent these venomous snakes into the Israelite camp to bring judgment on his people. And anyone who was bitten by these snakes, they understood it is a death sentence, okay? That's, that's just how it is. I, I stand condemned for my sin, and I am going to die. And so the people, they cry out to God. Actually, they're too afraid to cry out to God. So they cry out to Moses and they say, you go talk to God, do something. We need you. We're desperate. We, we, we know that we've rebelled. We know that we're sinful. We know that we stand condemned. Help. And God says to Moses, here's what I want you to do. I sent these snakes into, into the camp, but here's what I want you to do. I want you to take some metal, take some bronze, and I want you to fashion a snake. And I want you to put that snake on a pole and I want you to hold it really high up in the air. And, and here's what you tell the people. I'm willing to save you. I'm willing to redeem you. I'm, I'm willing to put your sin behind you. And even though you are sentenced to death, you might yet, yet live. And here's what you need to do. You just need to look at that snake that Moses is holding up in the air and you need to believe that your God will deliver you. And if you look in faith, if, if you look at all, if you look to him, you'll be cured. You'll be healed. The venom will not touch you. Okay? So it's this kind of odd story of God's redemption. But we, we come fast forward to the time of Jesus and, 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 and to the time of the gospel. And what Jesus says from his own lips, he essentially says, I'm the true and better snake in the wilderness. I am the one who will soon be lifted up on a cross. And anyone who looks to me, though they stand condemned, though they are in their sin, though they are under God's judgment, though they deserve death, and they're about to receive death, if they look to me, they will live. Everyone who looks to me, what does it mean to look to him? It means you trust in him. It means you hope in him. It means that instead of saying, man, if I can just do better and try harder and keep my nose clean and be a better person, then maybe God will take me. No. It means, it means I stand condemned and I know it and my only hope is that he receives me. But I believe that he's a gracious God and I believe that he will receive me and I believe that he paid the debt in my place for my sin. I hope in him. And Jesus says, whoever looks to me will live. Whoever looks to me will have eternal life. Meaning not just resurrection from the dead in the future, but life now in communion with our God. Amen? Abundant life, life that is truly life. Not that it is easier, but life that is better because we're reconciled 
to our God. That's, that's the story. That's the image behind 316 when he says, whoever believes in him, in Jesus, shall not perish but have eternal life. Then on to verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Let me read that again. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. What I want us to see is that Jesus is on a mission of mercy, not a mission of judgment. And we as his people, we are called to be on a mission of mercy, not on a mission of judgment. Now it's true that Jesus called out sin. It's true that Jesus was, was honest and real about sin, about its consequences, about punishment, about all of those things. Okay? But when Jesus came on the scene, humanity stood condemned already. We stood condemned already. Our neighbors stood condemned already. And what Jesus came, he came to dead and dying men and he said, I'm, I'm bringing you grace. I'm bringing you hope. I'm bringing you mercy. And that should shape our interactions with other people. We should not be the people that make our friends and neighbors instinctively feel guilty because they're around us. Okay? Like, like being a preacher, I got this weird dynamic that people are often apologizing for swearing. Like they can drop an F-bomb in front of anybody but me. Okay? You know, but I think anyone who spends some time with me, it's not that I'm like, you know, condoning bad words or whatever, but they realize that I love them, that I'm not here to judge them, that, that you know, you be you. Welcome to Mosaic Church. We don't want people to feel guilty around us. We want people to be confused by the graciousness of God that is exuding from us. Amen? Okay? We want to be the people who drink so deeply of the gospel that we are like this sponge that is just filled to overflowing with grace. And when it goes out into the world and it gets bumped, it leaks grace. Because that is the nature of our God. That is the nature of his love. That is, that is the nature of his mission in the world. We've talked about the magnitude of God's love. We've talked about the cost of his love, the nature of his love. Finally and briefly, I want to explore our doubts about his love. Verse 19, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, meaning Jesus, the author and source of all light and life, has come into the world. But men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. I think this verse is speaking primarily of the person who is willfully choosing sin. Who says, I want to live in rebellion to God. And it says, okay, they want to stay away from Jesus. They want to stay away from the light because they realize if they get too close to Jesus, if they get too close to his people, if they get too close to the light, that who they are and what they value and the wickedness within them, that it's going to be exposed. Okay? A few of us were looking at this passage earlier this morning and uh, one of the guys compared it to the basketball player that can only go right. Okay, like he's really, he's okay at dribbling with his right hand. He can't do anything with his left hand, you know? 
And, and, and everybody knows it, but he, he, you know, he, he, he doesn't want to be exposed, so he never even tries to go left, because if he goes left, it's going to be exposed. Okay, so I think this is, I think this is talking about the person who recognizes, yeah, I'm, I'm choosing wickedness, that's what I want. Okay, so I'm going to stay away from Jesus. I'm going to stay away from his people. I don't want to come into the light. I don't, want to, I don't want to see my sin more clearly. But I also think this passage is speaking to all of us who, who don't necessarily want to live in sin, but we struggle with it every day. Proverbs talks about us. We're like that, that dog that returns to his vomit. And I think that sometimes there's a reality that we also don't want to come towards Jesus. We don't want to come into the light because we don't want to be exposed. We don't want to deal honestly with the reality of the brokenness within us. You know, we want to pretend. We, we, we want to downplay. We, 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 we don't want to come into the light. We don't want to be exposed because we don't want to feel vulnerable. We don't want to risk rejection. We don't want to see clearly that not only do we not live up to God's standard, we don't even live up to our own standard. And when we realize we don't live up to our own standard, there's this thing, well, well, if the people around me know how jacked up I am, they aren't going to love me either. I want us to see the gospel solution to this problem. Verse 21, it says, But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what, he has, what has been done has been done through God. I think this, this passage, this tail end of it, I think it's setting up a fundamental contrast between the person who is loaded down with guilt and shame over their sin, and they don't know what to do with it, and so they want to avoid intimacy, they want to avoid community, they want to avoid God and the people of God, because they're, they're afraid of rejection. And the contrast is between that group and the people who are ever more increasingly internalizing the gospel. And though they continue to sin and they continue to struggle, and though, though every time they get closer to Jesus, they, they, they see their sin more clearly and it stings a little bit. They, they just understand more clearly every day that, that we have a solution for our sin. And that we have a God who is gracious in the midst of our sin. We have a Father who does not run away from us no matter what. And it is beautiful, and it is good. All right, got to tune the kids in. Let me give a kid illustration of this. When I was a kindergartner, I really cared about impressing the second graders. You know, when you're in second grade, you're like, no big deal. But the fourth graders are still pretty amazing. And when you're in fourth grade, it's like, well, fourth grade's no big deal. I'm, like, taller than a bunch of them. But the sixth graders, oh, my. So I was in kindergarten. And there were second graders on the merry-go-round, at least one. And he rode my bus, and everybody thought he was cool. He was kind of a jerk. But, um, but everybody at the time thought he was cool. So I'm on the merry-go-round, and we got that thing spinning really, really good. And there's another kindergartner friend of mine named Mandy who was on the, on the merry-go-round with me. And I wasn't really thinking about Mandy much at all. I was thinking about Matt, the second grader, who I wanted to impress. And so I started backing up and backing up and backing up until I backed Mandy right off of the moving merry-go-round, which is probably one of many reasons you don't see merry-go-rounds on playgrounds anymore because <laughs> mean kids use them badly. And I was being a mean kid. Mandy's sister was also a second grader, and she was in charge of 
helping to make sure that the other kids obeyed the rules, and I wasn't one of those kids. Um, so Mandy went to her big sister, and her big sister went to the really tall people, the adults, and I was in trouble. Um, this was one of many times that I was in the principal's office in kindergarten. It was not great. Not an example in that regard. All right? But I was pretty ashamed because I recognized, I hadn't really thought about what I was doing in the moment, but when it was all over, it was, it was bad. Like, that's a super mean thing to do. And I was ashamed. I didn't want to come into the light. I didn't want to be exposed. I didn't want my parents to know what I did. So what did I do? I lied. Honestly, like there were some times in my childhood where I didn't tell my parents everything that I might have told them. But that's the only time I remember in my, in my childhood that I looked my parents in the eye and I just straight up lied to them. I didn't do it. And to this day, I have no idea... Well, I have suspicions that my parents know that I was lying because, like, what's, what's the chances that somebody makes that up, okay? And everybody's, like, against me, but I'm... At any rate, I've never talked to my parents about it because to this day, there's something in me that's like, well, that was pretty shameful. I don't want to bring that up. I'm bringing it up with you guys, but you're not mom, you know? When we sin, we want to hide. We want to be in the darkness. We don't want to come into the light because we're afraid that our sin will be exposed. We're afraid that people will know who we really are and we're afraid that they will reject us. The gospel is the exact opposite of that. The gospel is this reality. When when we are blinded by the light of Jesus, it's like, wow, there is sin here that I had no idea. There's, there's even more. There's more, so much sin here. And yet God loves me anyway. And God is gracious with me anyway. And there is a risk if I'm open about my sin that somebody in here are like, wow, he was a terrible kindergartner. I'm never going back to that church. That's wicked. Okay? But hopefully in this and in other things that are more recent and more serious, we are going to be this community that's like, oh yeah, I get you. I got sin in my life too. I don't push kids off of merry-go-rounds. I'm not demented. But I'm broken and I'm sinful and I'm with you in the struggle and I love you and we're in this together and we're going to look to Jesus and we're going to trust in Jesus, not just for our eternal salvation, but we're going to trust in him for our daily lives and for our identity and for our hope and that he will knit us together into a people who will represent his grace and his love to a dying world, amen? That he will knit us together in the people who love with his magnitude, who, who love in a costly way that he does, who love with, with this mission that, that's of the same nature as his mission. That we recognize that people are people and the gospel is the power of God to transform people. And we just want to welcome them into the good thing that we're enjoying. Amen? All right, let's pray. Kids, you've been amazing. God, we thank you for your grace and we just pray again and again that we would be a people who take you at your word and believe that you are gracious. Lord, help us to not be the people who hide in our sin because we're afraid that we might be exposed. Help us to be the people who are like, come and see me. I don't care because though someone else might reject me, my God and my Father, he loves me. And may his love for us shape the way we love our neighbors with a costly love like the costly love of his son. Amen.